Welcome, everybody, to Roger's List. This is the podcast where we are watching every single one of Roger Ebert's great movies. My name is Steve Guntley. Uh, there remains not two good podcasters unhanged in England. One of them is fat and grows old. And the other one is here with me today. You may know him as the host of the Cult Standard Podcast. Please welcome Mike Leiden. Hi, Mike. How's it going? Oh, man, I'm so impressed by that intro. Um, oh, thank I, you. Thank you. It's going. It, it was going great already, and it's, it's going even better now. Um, thank oh. you so much for having me on. We, we have podcasted a shamefully small amount together, you and I, for being like the I only know. two people. Like, you're the only person in my circle, really, who like podcasts regularly. So it feels weird that we haven't like collaborated more. It's a crime, damn it. It I am more crime. than happy to. I'm more than happy to change that. <laughs> yes, let's let's get on this. Um, before we get started on our movie today, tell us a little bit about the Cult Standard podcast. What's the uh, What's the elevator pitch on that for people who have not discovered it yet? Ah, uh, yes. Uh, so the elevator pitch. It was the brainchild of my wonderful co-host James Kozanides. Um, the idea is that uh, me and him go through uh, cult films. Uh, however you define a cult film. Um, usually we try to have a guest on and have someone put forward a movie, but the idea is that neither of us have seen it and that upon watching it, um, usually going in knowing little to nothing about it and being exposed to this cult for the first time, we decide whether or not we individually would join it. And, uh, and, and in the process, just get to experience the fringes of cinema, which is been i think my favorite part of doing this absolutely um, yeah have you what 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 are some of the cults that you've joined i don't know is that spoilery to ask about the show oh no not at all um so i would say that the one uh it, it, this was actually put forward by uh, uh someone who works at the pickford um we've had a couple uh people at the pickford on and one of them put forward fantastic planet which is an animated french film yeah that has a, a lot of commentary on like uh, colonialism, um, racism, discrimination, uh, and also uh, like weirdly kind of, a, a even like a, a hopeful and, uh, humanistic tinge to the whole thing as well. Yeah. And I just had a, this, a kaleidoscope of experiences watching that movie. It is also pretty trippy. And, oh yeah. Uh, it's weird as hell. It's great. Oh man. I couldn't sign up quickly enough for that cult though. Um, oh, that, yeah. and that was just, I mean, I had seen the criterion art for it. I'm like, that looks interesting. There's, you know, the, the movie about giant blue aliens that isn't avatar. Right. Um, and uh, boy, if I could pick one of those two to earn $2 billion globally, I'm just saying it would Can be. Can you imagine one. a world where like you're watching <laughs> fantastic planet on, on IMAX screens in 3d and people are like freaking out about it. There's a theme park of fantastic planet at Disneyland. Yeah. Oh man. I, <clears throat> I, I would go I, I could not get in line quickly enough it would be that'd be incredible uh, I think there should just be like a blue character multiverse that we we make that all of it because like people don't really care about avatar on their own but man are we clamoring for some blue people uh, so you know I think we we get the blue meanies in there we get all the characters from fantastic oh, Planet. you know the we smurfs, get the smurfs of smurfs of course yeah. they get their own little dedicated uh, food cart you know all of that this is completely tangential but but really quickly I I don't understand, and I'm not the first person to point this out, but how a movie, it, it's not that Avatar is particularly bad. It's just like, what other movie made so much money and such a relatively small po impact on popular culture? It really has very little like cultural tale, you know, like people don't yeah. like, I can't really remember the names of any of the characters in, in Avatar or anything like yeah. that. Like, I, I don't remember individual plot i remember individual moments like really blowing my mind when watching it in 3d you know and there's sure. some visuals in there that are pretty amazing it's Absolutely. an entertaining like swift moving movie but like this is not one i've rewatched in the 10 years it's no, been out I, like i have I, just like the moments in th something like titanic just because that was you know the earlier james yeah. joint like you know stand out so much and they're they're amazing i genuinely love love titanic and Titanic has uh, aged great, and maybe maybe Avatar has. will be the same way. But yeah, maybe. But just moments stand out in Titanic in a way that I don't think they do in Avatar. Anyway, just not the first person to make that observation, but it just always baffles me. It's always so strange. Maybe this the next five sequels will turn it around when we get them hey. in twenty fifty. 
I, yeah, I, I'm sure he's just about done. <laughs> we will see. We will see. Uh, shockingly, we are not talking about Avatar today. You'd be, you'd be forgiven for thinking that we are. But in fact, we are talking about a movie called Chimes at Midnight. This was released December 22nd, 1965. It's directed by Orson Welles, and it stars Orson Welles, Keith Baxter, John Moreau, John Gielgud, Margaret Rutherford, Norman Rodway, and Ralph Richardson as the narrator. All right, so Mike, I have to ask you right off the top, right off the top why did you choose to guest on this movie in particular? Because this is, bar none, my favorite Shakespeare adaptation, um, either direct or indirect. Um, and wow. there have been some great. There have been some great ones. Um, I, I had the uh, the pleasure of seeing uh, Akira Kurosawa's Ron, which is yeah. a which is an adaptation of King Lear, um, obviously not using Shakespeare's language, but uh, adapting the story of that um, and actually making it uh, pretty, uh, imbuing it pretty deeply with uh, Japanese folklore as well. Yeah, um, that, that's on the list. It, we'll have an episode on that in the future, yeah. I might sign up for that as well. Um, yeah. I do love that movie, but Chimes at Midnight is, I mean, aside from being... Uh, a, a phenomenal and fluid adaptation of what is generally referred to as the Henry ad, which are the, mm. the Henry plays in Shakespeare um, has, I think the greatest performance of a Shakespeare character on film in Orson Welles's Falstaff. It's got some of the greatest cinematography in a Shakespeare film. Some of the best editing um, and I think adding all that to the the legend of Orson Welles, um, I I really like looking at the non Citizen Kane side of Orson Welles because he was so much more than I think what he's become kind of both famous and infamous for yeah. as being this you know boy genius who came to Hollywood. Uh, riled the system, made the greatest home of all time, and then struggled to get things done for the rest of his career until he died fat and, you know, alone. Um, Orson Welles' career was full of life, full of vibrancy, and uh, and a lot of artistic ambition. Yeah. And he has made many masterpieces on top of Citizen Kane, complete or incomplete. And, uh, and, and Chimes of Midnight is one that is not only complete, but that very recently, uh, only very recently, but I am very grateful for it. We now have pretty accessible to us in a beautiful restored print. Um, Janice film put it out in the U S and, uh, there's a beautiful collection on criterion and I'm just, it's one of those movies where I am happy criteria. I am so happy criterion exists because they honestly probably saved the movie at least in the in the condition we have it in now yeah. so just sorry i to go on and on but just a million no, no. reasons why this, this this movie is amazing and means a lot to me this is a movie i tried to get a hold of several years ago because i i'd heard about it through ebert's essays and i wanted to see what all the fuss was about but you couldn't find it in america anywhere uh the only place you could get it is if you special ordered this like blu-ray print from uh, brazil i think it was yep. and so my copy showed up it's called falstaff everywhere else in the world it's called chimes at midnight here but everywhere else it's called falstaff and my copy of falstaff would not play on any of my dvd players <laughs> i even had like a foreign dvd player like for all regions and it wouldn't play on that just because it was all kind of scratched up so i didn't get a chance to see it until uh i watched it just now on the criterion channel and this this is a very interesting movie i think we're we're uh I'm, I'm going to push back on some of it because like, I think, sure. I feel like this is a heavily flawed movie okay. in a fascinating way. Like I, 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 you know, I, and I'm, I don't, I'm not one of those who thinks that all the movies on this list are perfect. You know, I think they're yeah. some of the, and I don't think uh, a movie, I, 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 I do think a movie can be heavily flawed and still be a great movie, you know? So like, I'm, I'm not, I'm not like coming down on this movie already, but I agree with you that this is a very fascinating time in Orson Welles' career. We are at kind of the tipping point, you know? This is where he still has a little bit of that artistic genius and that spark, and it's still coming through, but he's also starting to lose his battles with his excesses, you know? He's starting to he's starting to descend into what he would be in the later half of his life, which would be, like, almost parodic, you know? He, he mm -hmm. became 
sort of this uh, this this shell of himself, you know, and he started taking all these like lowly paycheck gigs to make the rent, you know, and uh, it, it, so this is the movie that where we kind of see that transition, you know. Um, I think we need to start by talking a little bit about Orson Welles because uh, this is our first time talking about him on this show. Oh, yeah. It will definitely not be the last. Uh, obviously, I think a lot of what we need to talk about with Welles is going to come up when we talk about uh, Citizen Kane and the Transformers movie, of course, which uh, uh, we're going to dedicate. Of course. That's going to be a three-part episode, that, I think. That, that, that made that made Ebert's great movies list, right? Yeah, it's the Unicroniad. Uh, it's very, <laughs> it's it's really, uh, uh, it's very, it's complete. Yeah, it's one of the more ambitious tellings of that story. Uh, no, but well, <laughs> a few basics here. Uh, Orson Welles was born in Kenosha, Wisconsin in 1915. That's been in the news a lot right now. Uh, he made a name for himself on the New York stage in the 1930s, and by the age of 22, he was already a massive success as an actor. By 23, he was on the cover of Time magazine because of the innovative stuff he started doing at the Mercury Theater. Uh, and basically, he had kind of a blank check to do anything he wanted. Every play that he put forward was this exciting new revelation. He started doing all this work in radio because he's got this inimitable voice. Like, no, I mean, well, okay, Maurice LaMarche can imitate it, but... He's got this perfect voice. Is that is um, that Pinky? That's Pinky. Yeah, that's yeah, Pinky. Yeah, because he, he does all of the Orson Welles impressions. Including in, in Ed oops, Wood. Ed yeah, Wood. In, yep. in Ed Wood. Yeah, they have Vincent D'Onofrio playing the physical body, but he does the voice. Uh, so in 1938, he rocketed to worldwide fame because of his performance of War of the Worlds on the radio. And the apocryphal story, I could never actually find if this is something that actually happened, but apparently his reading was so convincing that some people in rural places were starting to panic as if aliens were really attacking. And the story goes that some farmers opened fire on their water silos and their grain barns and stuff like that. I don't know if a grain barn is a real thing. Oh, wow. I'm not a farmer. But <laughs> yeah. apparently they I, I, saw them in the setting sun. They thought they were alien walkers and they opened fire. Uh, so I don't know if that's true or not. But I, I no like No matter how it true it is, though, it just kind of it puts myth and exaggeration at the very beginning of Orson Welles' story, which I think yes. is a big part of his public persona. He, he is this larger-than-life figure. By the time he went to Hollywood in 1943, he basically got uh, carte blanche to make any project he wanted, and that project wound up being Citizen Kane, which no one ever heard about ever again. Uh, so we'll, we will get to that eventually in time. But uh, the, the important part for this movie is that uh, what we're covering here is relatively late in his career. Uh Chimes is actually his last narrative film that he ever directed. He directed one documentary after this called F is for Fake. But this is uh, one of the last films he ever made. Um, and he he was starting to burn a lot of bridges in Hollywood because he is notoriously difficult. He's an obs- He was an obsessive perfectionist. Uh, he could be a bully. He could be mercurial. And, and that's not a pun on Mercury Theater. He just <laughs> he was a very odd dude who liked to work on odd ways. And he was also a genius. So, you know, it kind of made sense to kind of get behind it. But he had to fight for pretty much every project he made. And sometimes, as we'll see when we're going into the making of this movie, he had to uh, lie and con and steal his way <laughs> to getting a production finished. Um, so, yeah, the later half of his career is usually viewed as a little embarrassing, you know. Uh, after a while, he started taking paycheck roles. There's the the famous uh, wine commercial that he did, I think, in the late 70s, <laughs> early 80s. Ah, the French champagne. <laughs> <laughs> sorry i'll tell you don't don't give me notes it sickens me uh, <laughs> um, this is a crock of shit you know that <laughs> I, I'm so, I love it so much again mentioning pinky in the brain there's an episode of pinky in the brain where maurice lamarche just does that bit he does that entire commercial verbatim on the show and they <laughs> animate him as pinky saying it and it's nuts and they cut out a- the swear words but that's it <laughs> so it's amazing i love that show I love um, too. So yeah, like like as mentioned, his last film performance ever was in Transformers the movie. This is the 1985 animated one with soundtrack by Weird Al Yankovic. Uh, not a not a high point to end on. If you're if you're Orson Welles, if you're one of the greatest filmmakers and film presences of all time, you do not want to go out on a Transformers movie. Um, but yeah, he he died at 70 in 1985, massive heart attack. Um, so, yeah, yeah. So let's talk a little bit about this movie. This one had a troubled production because it was an Orson Welles production, and he brought trouble <laughs> to it wherever he went. 
So this uh, this movie originally started as a play. He called it The Five Kings, and he showed it in 1939. It was a very ambitious retelling of the entire War of the Roses cycle. So that's the Henriad plays, Henry IV, Henry V, and, uh, or Henry IV, Part One and Two, and Henry V, and then Richard II and Richard III. And uh, he also uh, mixed a little bit of The Merry Wives of Windsor in there because that was the other play that Falstaff appeared in. Uh, so yeah, it was as very ambitious for an idea and Wells, uh, was not, I don't know for the guy who was supposed to be the driving force behind it. He kind of immediately lost interest. Uh, Prince Hal in this time was being played by a young, uh, up and coming actor named Burgess Meredith. And <laughs> amazing to think of Burgess Meredith as young in any context. You, you know, it's interesting. Not the only Shakespeare film that Burgess Meredith has been associated with. Oh, really? Which, uh, what was the other one? <laughs> the weirdest one ever, uh, Jean-Luc Godard's King Lear, which oh is <laughs> the most infuriating movie. Um, some critics, there are a few critics who love it. I, it, I, it is an unwatchable movie because it's not really <laughs> a movie. Um, it's. <laughs> I like to think he's in character from Rocky and just like shouting he, all his lines. He and kind he's playing, of is. And he's playing Goneril. <laughs> oh, if only. <laughs> See, that would be visionary. Yeah. Yeah. So apparently uh, uh, Orson Welles and Burgess Meredith would uh, disappear for large chunks of rehearsal. Well, they basically didn't rehearse it. They were gone. They were off drinking and uh, uh, just kind of boozing it up. Uh, Orson Welles would not show up to rehearsal. He wouldn't learn his lines. And the show, as a result, was something of a train wreck. By the time they staged it for the first time, most of the people weren't off book. They didn't know their lines, and they hadn't really rehearsed it at all. Uh, and it was six hours long, which made it even more insufferable to try and sit through. So they tried to make some edits to save it. They brought it down to a nice, tight three and a half hours. But still, apparently, that was too much, and the show closed pretty quickly. But still, Wells kind of stuck with that idea. And uh, he returned to the project in 1960. Now, over those preceding 20 years, he had put on a prodigious amount of weight, let's say. He had, uh, his drinking had worsened, his his bon vivant lifestyle had kind of overtaken his his better angels at this point. And so you can understand why he wanted to refocus his script to focus more on the character of Falstaff. Falstaff, of course, is one of uh, Shakespeare's few recurring characters. He appears in Henry IV, Part One and Two, Henry V, and The Merry Wives of Windsor, all of them. Uh, and he's basically, the word Falstaffian is an adjective that has come around. If you don't know this character, uh, you may know the term. Falstaffian means to just be uh, drunk and happy and debauched. Uh, basically, it's just, you know, you're, you're a good, good time party guy. You're, you're a Chris Farley. Farleyan, I think we should change it to. Uh, and I, and I should pose this to you. Do you think Chris Farley would have made a good Falstaff? That's interesting. Um, Let's cast it right I, I, now. I, I, Patrick I, Swayze honestly, as uh, Hal. Yeah. <laughs> make him do a Chippendale stance. <laughs> I, I would actually say yes, provided that he had a good director. Not, <laughs> not, that, um, not that Chris Farley, I, I think he would absolutely be capable of finding a good performance on his own. I think it, it would be about making that material applicable to his to the style he would bring to it yeah Uh, because he would absolutely do a unique take on Falstaff that would probably be fundamentally modern but equally true to the character which is I think what's so brilliant about I mean so many of Shakespeare's characters but Falstaff in particular is their adaptability to different uh different social uh, different times, different circumstances. Yeah. Um, there because they they kind of speak to more universal human uh, human uh, emotions and virtues, yeah. ideas. And Falstaff is essentially the patron saint of of hedonistic joy. Yeah, uh, to, like to, to the point of making it almost like a, a philosophical treatise. Although nothing so dry. Falstaff is funny and engaging. He um, is, and he's also like a, a sad figure. He's a quietly tragic figure mm-hmm. as well, you know. But you yeah. can see why actors would enjoy getting a chance to sink their teeth into this role, you know, because you get to be larger than life. And Wells himself considered Falstaff Shakespeare's greatest creation, so mm-hmm. he really wanted this new show to focus on Falstaff and his relationship with Prince Hal. It's kind of brotherly, kind of fatherly. It's it, but it's really. The important part is they have a very Falstaff at least sees a very familial relationship where Prince Hal may not quite feel that way. But uh, so the play was now has been renamed Chimes at Midnight, uh, coming from the line from Henry the Fourth, Part Two. 
and it debuted in Dublin and was met with enthusiastic reviews at the time, though Wells still couldn't be bothered to attend rehearsals or go off book. Apparently, he uh, carried his script on stage with him, which melts <laughs> my brain as somebody who's <laughs> done a lot of theater. It melts my that's brain. Some, that's a Marlon Brando move. And that's I, a, I yeah, don't that's even the, know how you can do that in theater. That's that's some BDE right there. That's oh, uh, man. But, uh, and, and apparently he cut the run of the show short uh, simply because he grew bored with it. And uh, Keith Baxter, who plays Prince Hal in the movie and in the play, he came forward and asked what was going on. And he just said, uh, we'll just consider this play a rehearsal for the movie. And he <laughs> promised uh, Keith Baxter that he could come be in the movie. He, he and Wells are actually the only ones from the stage show who made it into the film. Um, so Wells was able to get funding for this project. At this time, he was working mostly in Europe. He was working between Spain and Switzerland because he had a hard time getting his projects off the ground in the States. Uh, so he went to one of his Spanish producers and agreed to make a film version of Treasure Island. Uh, that's the movie that they wanted. And he said, OK, I'll make this Treasure Island as long as you let me make my movie afterwards. And what Wells did was basically just made his movie anyway. He took the money. Uh, he built sets that could work for both Treasure Island and Chimes at Midnight so that if any producers came to visit the set, he had plausible deniability. He cast all the actors in double roles, like just saying, okay, if anyone comes and asks, uh, you're, you're Captain Flint, you're, you're Jim, whatever, you know, like, <laughs> so he basically just pulled this big con and that's why most of the movie takes place in the Boar's Head Tavern because this could easily double as the tavern in Treasure Island. Uh, so this movie never came around. And then ironically, Wells would go on to uh, uh, play Long John Silver in a movie version of Treasure Island just five years later. So, you know, he could have just used the same set. Uh, I think that's crazy. I think it's so funny. Like he he ran and again, they ran out of funding while they were filming this movie because Wells has a tendency to go overboard with everything, you know? Oh, yeah. Um, this, this movie has one of the most... Um, I mean, especially for a movie that had almost no distribution for decades. Yeah. Uh, has one of the most influential battle sequences in it. Yes. Um, uh, that was, uh, has been influential to everyone from Mel Gibson filming Braveheart to, um, I believe, even the director of the Battle of the Bastards on Game of Thrones cited it as an influence. Oh, um, yeah. I know... Kenneth Branagh was uh, inspired by it for his adaptation of Henry V. And it's a it's a battle sequence that was shot w with 100 extras, maybe. Um, yeah, 180. Henry, but he made it to look like... 180. Yeah, made it to look shot like Shot and to look like armies. And it, yeah. it does. It looks phenomenal. And it's visceral. It is... Uh, it, it, like, you feel like you're in that battle in a way that I haven't experienced much, particularly in... Uh, uh, like theatrical adaptations and, and period dramas. This battle really uh, uh, spun me for a loop because it's coming in the middle of a movie that up to this point has been, it's been very talky. It's been a lot of people idling around in a bar, like drinking and swearing and like pranking each other. And then this battle sequence comes out and I'm like, oh, okay, there's going to be like a wacky battle sequence. We're setting it up. Falstaff's hiding in the bushes. It's going to be wacky. And then see, like, it is silhouette. like, it it's, is it's a joke. such a masterfully done like battle scene, like it, all, all this quick cuts and editing and like it starts, the editing gets faster and faster as it goes to like increase the tension. There's gore and there's like mud and guts splattered everywhere. And I'm just thinking, what is going on? Like, like it's having this incredible action movie sequence in the middle of something that was frankly a little dry. It's like, imagine if they edited in the parkour sequence from Casino Royale in the smack in the middle of Glengarry Glen Ross. It's like, it's like that kind of like tonal disconnect. It's like, wait, what, what is like, couldn't they, that, that would be great. Why I mean, that'd be great. Yeah. Like, hey, motherfucker, <laughs> come over here with your swords and I battle you with my leads and we win. <laughs> That's always ABC. Always be chasing. <laughs> I'm done. I'm sorry. Always be claiming credit for your friend's kills. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, well, yeah, let's jump into this movie a little bit and we'll kind of break it down. So, yeah, uh, yeah the, the movie is focusing, like we said, largely. So basically, if you want to know the level of hubris that Orson Welles was at at this time, uh, this man takes a look at uh, this series of Shakespearean plays, considered masterpieces, considered one of the greatest writers of all history. And Orson Welles says, yeah, I can punch this up. 
So he takes the three Henry books, the Henry plays, combines them into one uh, sub two hour movie. It was like an hour and 56 minute movie, which was a pleasant surprise for me. It was like, wow, I, I was expecting to be in this for the long haul. Um, a very crisp, concise movie. He kind of boils it down to its essence. And the focus of the play is now shifted from, you know, Henry the Fourth and Henry the Fifth. They have a lot of like court intrigue and a lot of politics and a lot of things like that. And that's generally excised from this movie almost entirely. Like there's very we get enough to set up the conflicts, but that's really it. The rest of the focus is on Falstaff and Hal as they kind of like goof around in the tavern and get into mischief. Um, and then with the eventual battle. Uh, Hal is going to have to ascend to the crown and fulfill his destiny, and he has to decide if Falstaff is the type of friend he wants in his life anymore. Um, so, yeah, the thing that this made me keep coming back to was the idea of, like, the Falstaffian friend. Have you had friends throughout your life where, like, that, that kind of served this role, whether you meant them to or not? Like, like they're kind of a good-time party person, but you also know they're not really going to be in your life forever? Yeah, they they weren't quite as, like eloquence and uh i i think didn't have as consistent of a worldview as falstaff did but yeah, yeah a- absolutely um and i the the interesting thing is i uh your description of Hal uh, intrigued me because i i'm curious how you read his of course tr- famous and tragic i, I this is not a spoiler. It's these plays are hundreds They're of 500 years old. Yeah. If you, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> his betrayal of Falstaff, um, in one of the most famous, uh, heartbreaking speeches in literature. Uh, yeah. Not old man. Uh, do you, how do you interpret that? Because I don't see it as how, um, I mean, he is disavowing Falstaff, but I don't see it as him deciding to, I see it, or I guess I see it as him understanding that the debt he owes to his, to, to the, the, to the throne and to his country and to his, his family is greater than his allegiance to Falstaff and that he's essentially sacrificing his good friend. I I never see it as him, um, being malevolently or even willingly tossing Falstaff aside. I think it's something that he is, uh, basically forced to do but that he his character growth at that point he understands that that's a sort of part of the burden that he has to bear yeah i no, i think you're dead on with that because yeah falstaff is this larger than life representation of hal's old life his carefree life before the responsibilities that he was kind of you know he's he's falstaff is where hal would go to kind of forget that he would have to be king one day, that all of this kingdom and this, this, these wars and all these enemies would someday be inherited. You know, so he's been trying to defer responsibility for as long as humanly possible. And I think in the back of his head, he always knew that this moment would come with Falstaff, that he would always, like, he wasn't going to be a figure in his life forever. You know, he knows he can't really be trusted and he wouldn't really be a sound advisor or anything like that. And the fact that Falstaff doesn't see this and doesn't understand this makes it extra tragic because it shows that they don't mean the same things to each other. Uh, I think Falstaff sees him, maybe, I don't think he's as a son. Like, a lot of stuff I read kind of indicated he felt like it's a father-son relationship. I didn't really read it like that, but I did read it as, like, a very close friendship or or a brotherhood (laughs) or something like that. Like, they... They, you know, he he means a lot to him. Like to the degree that Falstaff has an anchor, Hal is that anchor. He's the reason to keep getting out of bed in the morning. You know, <laughs> um, and having him turn his back on him so callously like that um, is is devastating, and it's really hard to watch. But Falstaff also his tragedy is that he should have known better. There are a couple of interesting decisions that Wells made. Um, in this, and I think Ebert references a couple of them where he uh, he takes things that were monologues in the play and puts the other character in the scene. Yeah. Um, mo- most impactful is probably uh, uh, Prince Hal's admission that he will, uh, you know, one day throw off his, uh, you know, th- throw off his vulgar uh, persona when he is, you know, to assume the throne. Yeah. And, uh, in the play, you know, Falstaff isn't there, 
in that scene, he's right behind him and Harry's it's a great like bidding. Yeah, it's a great split focus shot. Like, yeah, you mm-hmm. see them both very clearly. And it's I, I, I couldn't tell if Falstaff was could hear him or if he was just present. I don't know. He's not really reacting as if he can hear him. I, I interpreted it as he could hear him because he gives a little look afterward, which this is this is what I love about this uh, this version is while the language I mean, I think I think all of the the entire screenplay is Shakespeare's language. Yeah, but um, it is perfectly balanced with film language. Yeah, um, in, in a way that matches it. It doesn't overwhelm it and it isn't overwhelmed by it. Um, but it, so you can pick apart performances and Orson Welles at that moment, he gives this little look that I've always kind of interpret always. I've seen this movie for the first time, like when it came out on Criterion, but there you go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> since I saw it, um, I interpreted it as him hearing it, acknowledging it, but kind of like not really believing it and okay. shirking him off. Um, which then kind of makes the ending even more tragic. Cause it's not like it was unforetold and that it's coming out of nowhere. Falstaff was warned. Yeah. He disregarded it. And I, he is gives the most heartbroken, downtrodden expression um, that, I mean, even if that was just the whole performance, I would still call it one of the greatest I've ever seen. Um, yeah, that it, that was definitely the crowning moment in this movie, yeah. like as far as Wells's performance goes, like that was definitely the most effective. He put aside the bluster and he was genuinely vulnerable and heartbroken and it, it was very very sad to watch mm-hmm. i i do have all right so i have some issues with yeah. the technical aspects of this movie okay because like you said the cinematography is gorgeous i really like that they chose like outdoor shots seem very oversaturated like the contrast is way off but it makes it look all the more fascinating and textured like there's a lot of I don't know. There's a lot of good detail here, but like it's so oversaturated black and white that it's almost cartoonish. And apparently Mm -hmm. during the funding process, some producers tried to get him to uh, make it in color. And so he turned their money away when they desperately needed it just because he (laughs) insisted on doing it in black and white, which was a great choice. Uh, So, Mm -hmm. I mean, the movie, it looks really great, but there is a major, major problem with the sound here. And it's a problem Uh. that I found impacted my enjoyment of the movie. First of all, okay. the du- well, the dubbing is all off, which you can deal with. If you watch enough Italian movies, you know, the dubbing's mm-hmm. always off in films like that, you know, and that's kind of the European tradition. Well, apparently what happened is just that they ran out of money while they were filming, and then the sound quality wasn't very good on the days where they had to shoot outside, so a lot of the lines had to be redubbed. Uh, and Orson Welles and uh, uh, Keith Baxter, who plays Hal, they overdi- overdubbed a lot of the voices of the other actors as well, just because maybe they had accents or they didn't like their performance enough. So you are hearing two guys playing a lot of different characters that aren't being credited as those characters. Um, mm. Now, the, the, the way I watched it didn't have any subtitles available either. And so with the blown out sound, the off, du- the off dubbing and... Uh, Wells' tendency to kind of speak into his chest because he's very large in this movie, very very jowly. I found it hard to understand what anyone was saying. And I've read some reviews arguing that that heightens the impact of this movie because it's taking away the agency of the words and it's putting the performances in the physicality and in the sets and in the design of everything. Uh, I, I, but I kind of push back on that. I think they just kind of fucked up the sound. And I think, I, I don't, I don't think this was an intentional choice to make it hard to understand. Uh, but it yeah, was, I, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I think there are two components to that. And one of them I completely agree with. And one I, I, I will defend a bit. Um, the, yeah, the, the dubbing is absolutely just, I mean, I don't even want to say mismanaged funds. They, they didn't have the funds. No. Um, yeah. Orson Welles was basically embezzled. I mean, it's essentially embezzling money. Um, <laughs> yeah. he, he, you know, it, that's the nature of the production. And, you know, while I think some of that does lend itself positively to the movie, um, by giving it, uh, some pretty effective, almost like a guerrilla style filmmaking approach to certain scenes in the boar's head. And yeah. because, you know, he, he couldn't always frame his shots perfectly, although there is some incredible blocking in here, but a lot of scenes are handheld. It really puts you in the, uh, moments and the immediacy of a scene. Mm-hmm. And that is, I think working to the film's benefit, that sound is just a technical blunder. And in a movie that is, I mean, while I do think the language is, 
only one component of this. It is an incredibly important component yeah. uh, in any Shakespeare, direct Shakespeare adaptation. It does impede that. Um, however, I do think there are moments in his performance, like you said, talking into his chest. And, and he makes it very, um, I, I would say, as naturalistic as you could make Shakespeare's dialogue in that, you know, he, I, I think he's really embodying John Falstaff yeah. um, in a way where, you know, he's making this sound like spoken words rather than written text. Right. And, and that while hard to understand, I do think adds something to the character um, that, that for me made me appreciate the performance more um, though. I do agree. It, it does make it harder to understand, but I think you get something, even if you can't hear the words in how he delivers them, that does contribute to your under to one's understanding of Falstaff's character. Oh, I, and I agree with that for sure. Like it is a very physical performance and he embodies it very well. I just think for me, like there are moments where the sound just kind of becomes cacophonous and I want to be, I want to be hearing the words, but at the same time, you could argue that this movie would be more accessible for people who aren't major Shakespeare fans or haven't read a lot of Shakespeare stuff, even though all the dialogue is Shakespearean, it's taken from the text. But mm-hmm. because the words are decentralized, you can you can still pick up on the story and what's happening just through the the physical performances alone. So that is something that's a testament to Wells' performance and to the the performances of all the other actors here that that still comes across. But mm-hmm. I think it is something that needs to be addressed and just say like, that's yeah, fair. Th- this is this is a this is a, this is not, this doesn't feel like an intentional choice. This feels like a fuck up to me, and I think. No. You know, and some fuck ups can enhance, you know, Jaws was a fuck up, you know, but like it, it does still need to be like addressed a little bit. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, so much of the much of the movie uh, in the early part just takes place in the Boar's Head Tavern with uh, I love the sequence where uh, they decide to go out and rob some traders by dressing, <laughs> dressing like monks. And they're kind of like they're kind of doing like Monty Python level, like peace and carrots, peace and carrots, peace and, like chatter, like while they're pretending yep. to be monks, like walking and pretending to pray and muttering to themselves and then they're robbing these traders, and then some other people come up and pretend to rob Falstaff. And so we see him back at the bar uh, bragging about how he trounced all these people and blah, blah, blah. Like, he's just this incorrigible fabulist, even when the people in the room know better. And that kind of sets up later after the Battle of Shrewsbury, where he uh, picks up Hotspur's body and brings it and claims that he killed him himself, even though he was literally hiding in the bushes. Um <laughs> But like it's I guess the question is raised. I don't know if it ever really comes up in the plays or not. Like we never really get to see Falstaff as like a young knight. You know, we never get to see. Yeah, we never get to see if he was like a gallant knight at any point or if he's always just been kind of a con man. You know, Yeah, I I think there's like actually a lot of literary criticism and theories about that. Um, I could be wrong. This could have a very definitive answer. Um, I have not. One of my quarantine projects has been working, trying to work my way through Shakespeare. And uh, I'm I've going been working my way through the films of Adam Sandler. So yours is better. Yours is a better I, uh, use. I of don't know. Time. I don't know. I don't know, man. You got punch drunk love in there. So uh, <laughs> sincerely, one of my favorites. Um, but I haven't gotten to the Henry plays yet. So I don't know. But I, I remember reading that uh, th- there has been a lot of. Um, speculation about Falstaff's origins and what led to him being the sort of eloquent and worldwide uh, hedonist that he yeah. is because he seems to be on the bottom of the totem pole and yet has basically seen the the whole breadth of what the world has to offer. Well, and that's you know, the thing. Like, like people will constantly underestimate him because he yeah. is fat and drunk and he is, he's not to be trusted. So people, but he's amusing to have around, you know? So he's like one of these guys, you know, if this were modern day Hollywood, he would be invited to all the parties and he'd have all the stories, but nobody would really know why he's still there. He's Andy Dick. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So, uh, Oh my God, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Andy Dick is a Falstaffian figure. Who knew? Um, wow. so, but like take the scene at, uh, at, at the, the battle of Shrewsbury that we're talking about. So this conflict goes on between Hotspur, who is like this, uh, he's, he's raising a rebellion against King Henry V or King Henry IV, excuse me. And, uh, he is trying to overthrow his, uh, uh monarchy, and so there's this big, gory battle, and we'll talk a little bit more about the battle because I loved it so much, but uh, at the end of which, uh, Hal is able to kill Hotspur, they quench the rebellion, and immediately after this happens, 
Falstaff runs in, picks up Hotspur's body, and runs him in as if he's killed him himself, even though he and Hal both know that Hal killed him. But I'm watching this, and I'm thinking, like, okay, he spent this whole fight cowering. Is he actually a coward, or is this just, does he know the state that he's in and that he knows, like, this is self-preservation. He still wants to be able to participate, but he knows that he can't participate in the way that he would as a younger man. Or was he just always like this? Did he always just suit up in his armor and then find a good bush to hide in and come back with a kill and just claim, hey, hey, make me a knight, you know? I mean, I I think it's almost a rebuke to the idea of honor. Um, I mean, he's got his whole, he's got, he's got his whole speech about how, you know, the word honor is just air. And, it, you know, it's it's fundamentally a thing that people have constructed. Yeah. That, that isn't actually a, it, it doesn't actually do anything for people. And I don't know, I always kind of saw it as a, a sort of opportunism, but not, it, but more in a way where I think he values honor so little and understands that the world values it so much that he will play it to his favor if he can yeah um which you know i i i think i'm i'm gonna be like a constant falstaff apologist because no. there's i just see so much uh i, I see so much relatable fallibility in that character oh 100 you know? percent. um all of the all of the vices and all of the sins that he partakes in you know it, I, what's brilliant about them is not just that they're sins and vices but that they're such recognizable and relatable sins and vices. Oh yeah. To I mean, at least to me and, and a lot of people who've res with whom the characters resonated. Yeah. Um, yeah. I always, so I viewed it more, uh, I think a, a little bit more, uh, a, a less maliciously, I guess, than him trying to just, you know, take credit. Yeah. Out of curiosity, have you seen the recent Netflix movie, the King with Timothy Chalamet? No, wait, oh, okay. I don't even know if I'm aware of this. Oh yeah, this uh, came out last year. It was a it was a Netflix movie. It's a David Michaud film and it's a retelling of Henry V. Uh and yeah, Timothy Chalamet as Hal and Falstaff is played by Joel Edgerton. So I'm wondering, oh. I don't think they Whoa. put him in a fat suit or anything. So I'm I'm thinking they might have completely uh revised that character. It sounds like he's more of a more of a serious advisor than he is a good time party buddy, but I haven't watched the movie. I don't know. I have, I'm that would be sure. interesting to see. And, and to be clear, by the way, as much as I am uh, enamored with the traditional character of Falstaff and in particular, Wells's interpretation of Falstaff, uh, I please change anything and everything. It's all yeah. on the table. If you can, if you can create a new dynamic out of this material, do it. Absolutely. It's, I, I I am all in favor of that, that particular is, uh, with Shakespeare. That is uh, uh, Gus Van Sant's My Own Private Idaho is a, a reinterpretation of this very story. So That's true. If you want to see this story play out with gay prostitutes, it's uh, a mm -hmm. pretty interesting movie. Um, yeah, so I think this moment, yeah, well, I think we just need to jump into the Battle of Shrewsbury Hill a little bit because we really need yep. to emphasize how amazingly choreographed this scene is. And, in, you know, I, again, it's I was being flip earlier, but it's it's not like this comes out of nowhere, nowhere. But it does feel no. like this level of like you didn't expect it to hit this hard. You know, you didn't expect it to come in with like handheld cameras getting shoved around the muck and like gore flying on this lens and like the the shuffle of feet and the chaos. And like this looks violent and it looks scary and it looks horrible. And you could see yeah. why so many films are are emulating this because it also looks very cinematic. I don't want to say it looks badass, like because that's that's not. There, oh, there's a cat in the podcast. Yeah, yeah no, oh, sorry, don't don't no, mind I love my kitty. It. Oh, I love cat, I love cat cameos in the podcast. Y'all can't see it at home, but there's an awesome cat on the screen. Um, but yeah, no, it's this really gritty, incredible battle scene, and I I was thinking like this this is one of these scenes that looks like it could have been shot like yesterday. You know, mm -hmm. this looks as fresh and as vibrant as like a, a big epic battle scene you'd see today. And yeah. it's it's if there's I, I think there's a lot of reasons to watch this movie. But like if you eliminate all of those and just want to see a really great well-staged battle sequence, it's worth the price of admission alone for that. Yeah, it's it's this movie's um, Odessa Steps. Yeah, uh, it, it, like it really which even in the context of, of that movie, Battleship Potemkin kind of stands on his own as well. I, I'm kind of a sucker for, uh, for like set pieces. Yeah. Even if they are, like if they, if they, uh, 
stand apart from the movie surrounding them. It, it kind of just makes them feel that much more impactful to me. Mm. It's just like, wow, everything, it, it just, it, it, these scenes are so monumental. They kind of blow everything surrounding them uh, out of the picture. Yeah. You kind of forget about the movie that it's a part of. Um, and what's amazing about this too is like, this isn't even the climax of the movie. It, it's like about halfway midway. through. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and it almost and feels like, like I almost felt like it was going to wrap up sooner because after mm-hmm. the battle and after uh, the uh, Falstaff's whole thing with Hotspur, Hal just kind of turns his back and walks away. Like he goes yeah. off to be by himself. And I think that's like the real seed of when he's going to like stop hanging out with Falstaff. And that's why I was kind of surprised to see the next scene set at the boar's head again and how he's still back there. They're still yeah. hanging out and they're still getting up to the usual nonsense. Um, it's true. Um, but then, I mean, like, you know, really the, the, the true climax of the movie is the ultimate betrayal. So it, it, it is kind of, it's probably good that Wells didn't, you know, I, I feel like most adaptations, cause they'll usually take Henry the fifth yeah. and, uh, you know, or, um, or, or even if they're doing four part one and they'll take the battle and they'll make that the you know, the, the final hurrah, the climax of the movie. And I yeah. mean, that's pretty, it's a pretty familiar structure. And I kind of like instead that, you know, t- taking place in the middle and then you just kind of have to, you, you live the rest of the movie with the consequences of that battle, yeah. how the power dynamics shift and what that means for the characters. And the, the real climax is the uh, emotional comeuppance that they have to reckon with as the movie actually winds to a close. Right. You know, and you do get the sense that uh, uh, Falstaff is walking away from this battle unchanged. He is the way mm-hmm. he was before the battle and after, but Hal has taken lives now and he's never yep. killed anybody before. And that weighs heavily on him. And that with his father growing ill and he starts to really realize the magnitude of his responsibility, it, he starts to have less and less time, you know? Yeah. So uh, King Henry finally dies and Falstaff learns of this news going back to like the opening scene with the chimes at midnight speech. We, we cut back to that. He's hanging out with uh, his friends now are uh, suitably named shallow and silence. So like that's, those are, those are his two companions in his super, later years. Super subtle, Willie. Subtle. Really, subtle. Uh, yeah. Hey, you know, you really know, light hand, light authorial hand there. Look, no one ever said Shakespeare was a good writer. Okay. Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah no, no one. Ever. Ne- it's I never mean, been said. You, you, you'd have a hard time arguing it. But, uh, so Falstaff gets so excited when he learns of this coronation because he just assumes this is his ticket. Like, and I think, I think there's equal parts of like self-interest and like, Oh my God, my friend is, is King. Like, this is amazing. I'm so proud of him. Let me go talk to yeah. him and, and, and root him out. Like, I do feel like there is an earnest uh, desire to see and congratulate his, and encourage his friend, you know, and maybe find some kind of role in his in his court. Uh, mm-hmm. But he blunders into the coronation. He wanders in while during this very silent, solemn moment, and he just kind of like blusters out. He's like, hey, 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 it's party time. And, My uh, boy! <laughs> and, and Hal really, like... I mean, what other choice does he have in that situation? Like, it, maybe if he'd gone and talked to him privately afterwards, but, like, mm-hmm. here's this fat, drunken lech who, like, comes out stumbling and probably still smelling of booze and saying, hey, hey, it's party time. Now you've got access to, you know, all the royalty of England, you know? Let's let's go spend some serious money. Yeah. But, like, what what else is he going to say? You know, he, he's got to turn him away. But it's heartbreaking, and... It is heavily implied in this movie that um, this rejection is ultimately what kills Falstaff. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he, he's he's heartbroken in a very literal sense. It does need to be said, yeah. too, the makeup in here. Like, I had to look it up to make sure it was makeup because, like, the <laughs> the drinker's nose that Wells is rocking in this looks very it, real. Incredible. To it's, the point that it, I had it, to look up and see that his nose didn't actually look like that at this time. I, and I, and it, it didn't. It looks bulbous and red, despite the fact that this movie is in black and white. Yeah, you can almost <laughs> you can see, see it glowing red. through the screen. Yeah, it's really... And he's by yeah. the end of this movie, he's so sweaty. There were a lot of reviews of this coming out at the time, uh, unfairly criticizing his size and basically saying that Wells is the only actor who's ever been too fat to play Falstaff. Oh my God, that's uh, he awful. was He was over 300 pounds at this time. Apparently, he actually had to lose a little bit of weight 
to be in this movie. So he was, oh, wow. he, he was, he was a little out of control. Um, yeah. but I don't think it's fair to be like judging him based off of that because I think it is still just an incredibly commanding, like charismatic performance in, in over, overall, I feel like this is for a Shakespeare movie. This one moves very swiftly. Like, uh, and it's, it's yeah. the editing you were talking about too. Like it's edited very crisply. The lines are delivered like so rapid fire. There's not a lot of air in this movie. It's just very yeah. efficient and to the point. Uh, but, it, but there are also some trend. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh no, go please. Uh, there are also some transitions that I, I really like because they are exclusively cinematic. Like you couldn't do it on stage. Um, I think there's a cut early on where, um, Hotspur and Northumberland and whatnot are, um, fantasizing about poisoning, uh, poisoning Hal with a pot of ale. And then it cuts immediately to, uh, to the boar's head at which Hal is drinking a pot of ale. Um, and, and, and just those swift transitions. Wells apparently had, um, prac had, uh, experimented with revolving stages to, uh, facilitate some of those transitions mm-hmm. on stage, but you know, you could never get it quite that snappy and quite that fluid. Yeah. Um, and, and I think he was more comfortable at least in this regard. He was also, I mean, he has a long history of the theatrical productions. He loved the theater, but in some regards, I think he, he does take particularly well to the medium of film just because he can adapt space and time he, he can mold space and time to that extent. Yeah. And he, he does require a lot of artistic license. And I'm, I'm glad they gave it to him. I mean, I think this really, for all this movie's flaws, this was the last time in Wells' career that he really had a passion project that he saw through. You know, I think I mentioned, I'm not sure if I mentioned it, but Chimes at Midnight was actually his final onstage theatrical performance. Uh, when that show closed, when he went to the, do this movie, he never appeared on stage again which is kind of a huge deal for such like a, a, a theatrical luminary like Orson Welles. And after this, like this movie came out, it got kind of savage reviews at the time. I think uh, the attitude has turned around since. I think it was in the mid-70s, Vincent Camby in the New York Times echoed your sentiment, Mike. You said that he thinks it's the greatest Shakespearean adaptation of all time. Uh, and, and it's found an audience. And now that it's more accessible through the Criterion channel and the Criterion collection, uh, it it is getting a little bit more recognition than it deserved. But Wells kind of lost a lot of his vigor for his profession. Like I said, he just started taking supporting roles. And, you know, obviously his crowning achievement was in the Muppet Show movie or in the Muppet movie. Yeah. But, uh, you know. I mean, yeah, we all know that. Post-career. I mean, actually, I'm willing to say that. Yeah, post post this, his best career moment is Muppet Show or Muppet, Muppet movie. I, um, I, I do adore F for Fake. So I, I, I haven't seen it. So yeah, say that. Yeah. Um, it, phenomenal but that that is a pretty like firm like essay film documentary not so much a it, it's not a narrative film um but but hugely influential uh in terms of its editing especially oh yeah so uh i don't know if it's in the if it's in great films but um that's it's, another one i would be more than happy to talk about yeah it's not on this list in particular but i do want to check it out now based on that recommendation yeah. Um, I think we've reached about the end of the movie. Do you have anything else you'd like to say about Chimes at Midnight? Any uh, any little button to put on there? Just that, you know, uh, I, you are absolutely right uh, that there are um, that there are rough edges to this movie. Like, there are rough edges to Orson Welles, the vast majority of Orson Welles' career. Yeah. Um, but he he remains probably my favorite director, specifically because he's one of the few... Um, like magnanimous and sociable geniuses that I think we've ever had. There's this image of the auteur filmmaker. That's very like reclusive and, uh, austere. Yeah. Kind of like a Kubrick figure. And I think that was very appealing to me when I was first getting into film. And, uh, but Orson Welles, for someone who has so much myth around him, he's like, he's very tactile and like, I, I don't know. I, I could, I could almost imagine having a conversation with him oh, yeah. just because of how human he comes off. And part of his virtue too, is not just what he brings to the equation, but uh, I, I don't know which critic I read who expressed this sentiment, but basically that he brought out the best work in everyone around him as well. Yeah. Um, Carol Reed on the third man. Uh, he, he did the best directing job he ever did. Probably like, and a lot of it inspired by, Wells' cinematography. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, he, he was just that, uh, 
uh, Keith Baxter in yeah. uh, in this movie. Uh, I for someone who I am frankly very unfamiliar with gives one of the most complete character arc performances I've ever seen uh, and, and can can play both regal and debauched with equal effectiveness. So, yeah, we, we really didn't um, talk too much about him. Yeah, he he, yeah. Uh, he hasn't been in a movie or a TV show since 1998. I think he's primarily a theater guy. He's still with us. He's still working. Uh, yeah. But yeah, he, he's quite good in this movie, even though I never believed he was a teenager. He was 31 when he was making this movie. And he, oh. He looks 31. Uh, apparently, yeah, he looks 31. Uh, apparently, Anthony Perkins was uh, vying for this role, and uh, Wells had to turn him down because he promised it to Baxter. But Anthony Perkins would have been very good in this part. He did uh, work with Wells just before this in uh, his adaptation of Franz Kafka's The Trial, too. Oh, right. Which, yeah, uh, yeah. Phenomenal, by the way. Um, so yeah, like... It's just Wells's career is Citizen Kane and then a, a bunch of mangled masterpieces that I really think more people ought to visit. Um, this is maybe the one of the most complete ones, actually. Yeah. Um, the, the Magnificent Ambersons, which is on Ebert's list. So maybe I'll maybe I'll sign up for that one because um, I really want to talk about that's it. That's a hard one to track down to. That's another one I had to get like a Spanish language DVD. Uh, and Criterion, watch. Cri- Criterion, Criterion has, has it, now. it now. Oh, good, yes. good. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, that movie's infamous for having a uh, a lost ending. Yeah. And that it is truly lost t- still as far as we know. Nothing to be done about um, it. Yeah, the movie just kind of stops. Nothing to be done about it. And the ending is bad. Yeah. But, but it's almost, it almost makes the genius of what comes before that much stronger to me. I, I find something very endearing about Wells's less precious work than Citizen Kane. Yeah. And uh and I I would count Chimes of Midnight among that. Uh so so yeah. Uh I I love it, uh blemishes and all. Yeah. And I really appreciate being able to talk about it with you today. Oh my God. It's been so much fun talking to you about it. Like I I think I don't know. I don't know if I'm coming down on it as like a great movie or not. Like I don't know if I'm there, but I'm I'm gonna simmer on this a little bit because I think there there's some genuinely visionary stuff in here. Uh and and I think it's it's an incredibly entertaining movie. Like it's a very easy movie to watch. So like I would recommend watching it for sure. Like I don't know. I, I think I, I think I need a little time to sit on it to see where where it comes down in the canon for me, but, uh, that, that's fair. The, the world needed decades. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Uh, but, well, but also, yeah, never, never, uh, never stop, uh, getting your hands dirty with it and don't revere it. I, I feel like that's one of the, that's one of the big lessons that I take from this. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it, it, you, uh, it, it, art's not to be put on a pedestal and, no. and treated as gospel, you know? And, and I do actually really appreciate that, while uh you know this is basically going through our uh, you know a great critics canon uh things are not off limits no for for criticism no and i do think that's a wonderful approach yeah and that's something that i think we all need to keep doing uh mm-hmm. mike lyden god damn it's so good to be on a show <laughs> with you uh it's been way um, too yeah. long and I, I i really hope you come back for some more uh conversations as we go along uh because uh you're just you're awesome you're the best Oh, so Steve, you're awesome too. It's been so much fun. Uh, where and, where can people find you? Uh, your plugs and social medias and all that. Oh yeah, here we go. All right, so um, I'm on Twitter. Michael Lydon eight nine two is my handle. Um, I am again also part of the uh, uh, the oh my god <laughs> the Cold <laughs> Standard Podcast. <laughs> What's that other thing I do? I um, promise it actually is a very memorable show, but uh, you know. Oh yeah. Well, thank you. Um, <laughs> uh, and that is at uh, cult standard pod on Twitter. Um, and we also have a sort of spinoff podcast, uh, that James also pitched and I, I don't know what prompted him to, but I, I'm glad he did. Uh, it's our courage, the cowardly dog podcast. Oh yes. Um, it's called courage, the cowardly podcast. Uh, <laughs> we're, we're just going through all the episodes, courage, the cowardly dog. Uh, you can find that one at courage or sorry at cowardly podcast on twitter that's amazing uh that's so much (laughs) fun i love that idea well thank you so much for being here uh we are rogers list on all the different uh, social medias rogers list pod on twitter and on uh, uh letterboxd and all of those different various things so you can check us out there uh so be sure to join us next week i don't even know what we're talking about let me look at my list next week we are talking about 
oh, we are going to be uh, watching the movie Faust, F.W. Murnau's Faust, uh, an early silent film. Uh, I have not seen this one, so I'm excited to dig into it. So you got some good literary adaptations. There's uh, a lot of them. Yeah, there's a good um, Richard III adaptation coming up pretty soon, too. So, yeah, oh, yeah. I think it's, it's going to be cool. Uh, well, thank you again for being here. Uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. And we will see you next time. Or you can call me a peppercorn. That's a line. That's, 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 that's a line from the movie. Okay, bye. I love it. I love it.